Welcome to the Seasons of Sobriety podcast. This is a podcast where you can join in the journey of other recovering alcoholics and addicts. You will be on the road with them as you listen to how each person came into recovery and how they persevered through times of anger, sadness, fear, and joy. I am your host, Howard M. I'm here to share my own experience as well as the experience of other recovering brothers and sisters. I am so grateful you have decided to join me today. This episode features Joel N., originally from Bayside, Queens, and now lives in Glen Ridge, New Jersey. Joel has been sober since January 8th of 2018. Joel's story is an illustration of the importance of how vital it is to keep coming back. His journey includes a battle with prescription drug medication as he was diagnosed with medical conditions requiring pain management. I appreciated his tenacity and fortitude to face his dishonesty and become a beacon of hope for those dealing with problems other than alcohol and drugs. I think you will also enjoy how he has become a trusted servant as meetings in the area were restricted to a Zoom online format. Here now is my interview with Joel N. Hello, Joel, and welcome to the Seasons of Sobriety podcast. Thank you, Howard. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this. I would like you to uh, maybe take us back to uh, the first time you tried to get sober, which I think was back in 1985, and maybe just uh, unpack a little bit what was going on there and and how you, you know, maybe I would like to say maybe put the glass of milk, uh, the, the uh, shot of whiskey in your glass of milk, and uh, which kind of <laughs> led you to some of, some of the other parts of your story. Can you do that for us? Sure can, Howard. Um so in 1985, I was 19 years old. I was 29 years old. I'm sorry. I was, let me start over again. In 1985, I was approaching 28 years old, and I was out of college. I had tried my hand at several uh, employments and even some entrepreneurial businesses. At some point coming out of college, I found a friend from college who told me of one of our friends who had died from the AIDS epidemic. Mm. And it was one of the first deaths from the AIDS epidemic that I experienced at that time. And this friend said he had no place to stay. And at that time in my life, I had a two-bedroom apartment, one empty bedroom. And I said to him, why don't you come to my house? You could spend the night. That night started the rush to my first real bottom. Um, he took a bag, paper bag, glass, paraphernalia, started cooking up cocaine. Girls came over, there was a free base party. They were up all night in my dining room at a glass table that I had. And I took a couple of Valium, maybe a Dilaudid. I went off and went to sleep. I woke up maybe eight hours later and the same group of people were in the exact same space doing the exact same thing on their hands and knees, crawling around on the carpet. And I said, wow, that's a terrible thing to have endured for an entire night. Mm -hmm. I then, sp I then spent the next two years essentially freebasing that apartment. I put that apartment, all its belongings, the money that I earned from selling it into a glass pipe. And by September of 1985, I was sitting in front of my parents' house with scars on my fingers and, uh, you know, cracks in my teeth, unemployable. The locks had been changed on my parents' house. Mm. And, uh, I wasn't allowed in when they weren't home. And um, my life was, was really nowhere at that point. And I had met a woman in Cocaine Anonymous in January, earlier in 1985. 
and she was involved with a rehab, whether she was having a relationship with one of the administrators or not, but she was able to get me a bed on a scholarship at Deerbrook in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania. And in August of 1985, my parents drove me up. I was like the puppy that ate the couch in the back car, <laughs> you know, in the back of the car. I was crunched over in the corner, looking out the window, didn't know where my life was headed. I had nothing behind me that was worth trying to recapture, so I thought. And I had disappointed my parents. I had disappointed my friends. I had lost my ability to work. And this cocaine freebase had just consumed my life. Hmm. Um, and that was my first attempt um, at getting sober. And I came home from Clearbrook um, and I got, I got some years under my belt in the first few years coming home from Clearbrook. But other things went on in my life at that time, too. Okay. So this was, you, know, you first got sober in 1985 uh, at Clearbrook, you said? Yep. Clearbrook Manor for 28 days. I came home in September. Okay. And I walked into I walked into Gracie Square Hospital on a Sunday night to a Narcotics Anonymous meeting. And the next day I walked into the 79th Street workshop for an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. And that began my journey in 12-step recovery after rehab. Okay. Rehab introduced me to the 12 steps. It introduced me to the concept of addiction. It introduced me to the fact that I had a disease. And it made me clearly aware that I had been high in one form or another every day of my life for 16 years. Mm, okay. And then uh, you, had, you had told me that yeah, back in, was it February 2003, uh, you, you had mm -hmm. a relapse? Is that is that correct? Yeah. Um, in 2003, so you, you've got 1985, 1990. I, by 1990, I was separate. I got married in early recovery. Let's okay. start with that. And that creates conflict no matter how, how you look at it. I, I, I mean... For me, getting married in the first 12 months of my recovery is catamount to two garbage trucks looking for one parking spot. Neither of those people know themselves well enough to be able to share what they've learned about themselves with another party and to create a third entity, which is a relationship. Uh, the relationship for me is like a third entity between two people, sure. but both of them have to work on it, you know? That's, and that's the way I've looked at it. So this woman and I took about 10 to 12 years to become amiable friends, to mm. be able to have a decent enough conversation and to start really co-parenting in a positive way. Um, so today, set the clock forward, I have a, uh, an amazing 33-year-old daughter from that marriage. Um, but she's witnessed uh, a lot of illness both in relationships, illness in my individual struggle with addiction, her mother's struggles with addiction and relationship issues and mostly codependency issues. Mm -hmm. um, but that daughter is an amazing woman out of that marriage. Mm -hmm. okay. So so I spent several years you know, with my first wife, with this little baby, going to AA meetings, going to DA meetings, Drugs Anonymous, going to CA meetings, Cocaine Anonymous, and I was very much part of the Manhattan AAC from Midtown, from Perry Street, Mustard Seed. You know, we go around town, but my home group was on the Upper East Side and then on the Upper West Side, mostly 79th Street uh, workshop, Madison and 73rd, those kind of meetings. Okay. Midtown was an amazingly large meeting back then. You used to have a speaker and then break up into like tables all around the church. It'd be like four or 500 people on a Wednesday night. Wow. 
Wow. Okay. As you're uh, starting your decline, I'll say in 2002, and now it's becoming 2003, what do you think is initiating this decline? Uh, or, or was it the marital troubles you mentioned, or was there more to it than that? I think that for me, I started acting out outside my marriage. I started okay. touching base with my sexual addiction. I started touching base with my gambling addiction. I started, you know, looking at my business as a cash business and taking advantage of that in ways that weren't straight and narrow. I was cutting corners and and I wasn't living an honest life. I knew the steps in my head, but I didn't have them in my heart and I wasn't quite living them the way I knew them. So I think that's what really led me to end up in a hospital with kidney stones, get a prescription for pain medication, and then start to lie about it. Because I wasn't in a place, I wasn't in a place where I was sober enough to handle a, a narcotic prescription. And I became a liar again from with that addiction. I, I, I told my doctor when I didn't have pain that I had pain to get more. Mm. And then I started to find it on the streets. And and then I started to buy it. And by 2003, you were still able to buy it online and have it delivered to your home via UPS and FedEx. Anything from oxycodone to oxycontin to methamphetamine, whatever you wanted. You'd have a telephone interview with a doctor. And I had a, it was right after the Iraqi war as we went into 2003. And I had a stockpile. I was trying to save enough at that point in my life so that if I, never bought any more again i'd have enough to live to have for the rest of my life that's how sick my mind became i was trying to accumulate enough medication that i would never run out as long as i lived yeah sure it's that's like, insanity at its best well it's like the uh, the inventory process talks about you know any business you know goes broke without inventory also they go broke without uh, cash reserves and you needed pharmaceutical reserves clearly, clearly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so by 2003 my son, my second child, was two years old. I was living in a big house in Glen Ridge. Um, married to your first wife at this point? I was point? hiding. I'm sorry. Married to my second wife at this, okay. at this point. I, uh, my second wife and I were living together um, in 93. Okay. Got married in 2001, but we moved out to Jersey in 94, 95. Okay, and you were seeing your son? And, <clears throat> go ahead. And I, I, I interrupted. You were saying your son... Uh, so, okay. Yeah. Um, in 2003, my second child from my second marriage, his name is Harrison, um, was about two years old. He was a 9-11 child. And as much as I was trying to be present, I was back in that place where I was living two lives. I was trying to show the world one person and I was someone else inside doing things behind the scenes, lying about it, you know, and ultimately, you know, not being honest in my marriage, not being honest in my relationships. And again, that to me is what led to my relapses, Um, the dishonesty that I was living in, that I thought I could compartmentalize and get away with. Yeah. And it worked for a while. And then you just, you just couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. I think when we say that it works for a while, a guy, an addict, my addiction, it worked for half a day. I started with like wine and weed and I convinced the people around me that I could smoke wine and weed and, and 
presented to them a guy that was smoking uh, at night and having a drink or two at night. But what was really happening is I was waking up in the morning, going downstairs, sucking on a pipe all day long, starting to take pills because the pot made me anxious. So I was taking tranquilizers. <laughs> and I was in that cycle of 24 hours a day. I had to be on some, my blood level had to be on something. Mm -hmm. um, and I was back in that horrible place of, of, of addiction. Yeah. Um, and living two lives and hiding, hiding from other people and hiding from myself. Okay. And uh, in your story here, you say, you know, from 2003, again, you stayed sober for a little while and then relapsed again uh, back in 2011. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Um, I think that the, the best way, and I don't like to categorize anything, but the best way for me to categorize my sober history in combination with my relapse history is that I had years at times. Yes. The years would get shorter and the time in between using would get shorter. Yes. So the sober time would get shorter. I'd go down deeper. It would be harder to come back up. I'd go back out quicker. And by 2006, I basically said, why am I bullshitting myself? I'm trying to go to meetings. I can't stay sober. I'm just going to not go to meetings and let the shit hit the fan. And that's basically what I did. My life changed. I started drinking, going to going to bars, hanging out, and my business was successful. And I was managing in some way, but I was getting in, in, into a lot of trouble: financial unmanageability, overspending, all sorts of out of control behaviors. So that was 2006, right up until about 2009. My brother contracted cancer, lung cancer, and for a year. I was in between businesses. My addiction, again, I didn't, I didn't lose my business. I gave away my business because of my addiction. Uh -huh. and, and I was out of work. My brother was ill. He was getting divorced. And I wanted to take care of him. And I also, because I'm an addict, I wanted access to his cancer drugs, mm. his pain medication. Right. I got to be honest. Um, so in 2010, Stephen died. I was left with a bundle of his medications. I went to town and I hit another hardcore bottom on opiates. And through it all, I had still been paying for health insurance. And I called Silver Hill Hospital and I went back for a second time. Mm -hmm. um, so I really believe that my sobriety got rebooted in 2011. Crawled back into the morning meditation meeting at St. James Church started going every day, started reading the daily reflections, started reading the 24 hours a day book, didn't miss meetings, started doing service through my faith community, started doing service for the fellowship, started to get a little bit stronger physically. And life was good, changed jobs. I was working full time in the licensing industry. I was traveling around the world. And then in August of 2015, I started to get sick. I had real bad stomach cramps. I had uh, lots of physical discomfort, and I resisted going to the hospital. The end of August, uh, I went into the emergency room at uh, Mountainside Hospital. My sponsor came there with me. My wife was there with me. The question was raised around the, around the gurney, do we give him pain medication? Mm. The voice inside of me was, you have to give pain medication. I'm of dying. Course. And there were people saying... I don't know. I don't know. And I'm going, you can't argue over this inside. You can't argue this. 
and I, because I really wanted it at that point for the pain and the addiction. Uh, th there's, there's no dishonesty in that. I wanted it because I wanted to feel differently. And I wanted it because I wanted relief from how, how much pain I was in. So the next six months were procedures to remove stones from my kidneys, pancreatitis, treated for pancreatitis. I was diagnosed with hepatocellular cancer, um, a fairly large tumor in my liver, uh, that's liver cancer. There were a bunch of those. And then I had what's called neuroendocrine, I still have it, what's called neuroendocrine cancer. Um, and in October of 2015, all during those procedures to clear my kidneys for chemo and stuff like that, I had 12 hours of surgery. Hmm. That was 2015. The end of that procedure, I was chemically dependent. Hmm. Was yeah. I acting like an addict? Not yet, but I was chemically dependent. In a matter of months, I started to crave more. The, you know, the doctor's opinion, very true for me, that first night in the emergency room, my brain was hijacked and everything I said and did had a motivation to get more drugs. Mm -hmm. It was not only to heal my body, but there was a there was an extra motivation to get more drugs. So the struggles that I had with coping with cancer and addiction became really difficult for me in 2015. In 2016, my addiction started to win. I started to buy prescriptions from other patients at the hospital. And by the end of 2017, I was taking probably three times what I was prescribed by my doctors. And I admitted myself into a place called The Ranch up in uh, Wrightsville, Pennsylvania, and I detoxed again. And um, I chose to make that a restart for my sobriety also. I never picked up a drink. I never went out on the streets. I never stole really for it other than from my family, but I was addicted. So I started my count, I started my sobriety count over as January 8th, 2018. Mm -hmm. and, and I really appreciate you kind of taking us through some of that, you know, um, you know recovery and relapse and all that, because one of the things that, you know, and, and you, you said you're 63 years old, and I mm -hmm. think as we all get older, uh, we're going to be facing something physically besides alcoholism, you know, and uh, many, many times it might require uh, pain medication for us to tolerate what we're going through. And I think the sometimes um, we forget that as, as we go through meetings and, you know, I, I got I got to A my 20s and in my 30s and 40s, like I didn't have any of the things I have now. <laughs> And mm -hmm. uh, and who's to say that something else won't uh, come up for me that that has you know uh, been a challenge for you? And uh, I'd like to know that you know there's there's people with that with that experience. Uh, I mean, I'm not glad you have to go through it, but at least you know there's I'm not I'm not alone if I have if I have to go through it that kind of thing. And so I'm so I'm grateful for you know you kind of unpacking that it's just you know for sure. me for the audience as well. I absolutely, and, and for you, Howard, and for our audience, for me, for the people I meet, I absolutely think that this experience has, has merit to help people. For a long time, people couldn't talk about prescription addictions in, in the rooms of yep. AA, and there are still times where people are frowned upon if they bring that up as a primary topic. But people heading into relapse through prescription medications has become more common. I've been around the rooms 35 years. Yeah. And, you know, I see it now, the way it's happening with the doctors, with people. And, you know, 
I have a lot of shame for what's happened to me, but I also know that it's an illness. Yeah. And part of the illness is that the shame talks to me to try to keep me away from using it to help people. Yeah. So, yeah. so for me, you know, my greatest gratitude is that I live. Um, and God, and I believe in God, has saved me to be helpful. And, and that's really where I live my life today. Um, what I did learn a lot about, and I, and I wanted to share this with you and with your audience, is that there's so many new techniques coming out, but the doctors aren't getting them yet. They're, they're just starting to filter out. Things like you know, a pain medication patient like me who's on regular medication. I should be going to my pain doctor at least twice a month for pill checks. Okay. You know, I'm in a situation where I don't hold my pills. My wife checks in with my doctor and says nothing was stolen from my safe. You know okay. what I mean? Yep. Because because under lock and key, I can still get to them. Yep. I'm, a, I'm an addict, you know. So there are ways that doctors can get involved with pill checks, with smaller prescriptions coming in once a week for seven pills, once a week for seven pills, not giving away 120 or 180, 30 milligram Oxycontin when they walk out with, with a broken pinky. Yeah. You know, yeah. Stage four cancer is a little bit different, but it can be controlled in different ways. And I also learned when I was at the ranch that, you know, I can take pain medication while I'm in the hospital. I don't necessarily need to leave the hospital with pain medication. Uh -huh. I can leave the hospital with aspirin, Tylenol, leave. And if I need something stronger, I can go back for little bits. But, you know, the way it was written for me, 120, 180. Do you need more? Do you want more? Is it working? Do you want more? Do you yeah. want more? Do you want more? Well, it, you know, eventually I'm going to say yes, I'm an addict. Eventually I'm just going to go, yeah, sure, you know. And that's the way it was for a little while. And then I got back into rehab and I, I stay away from that stuff with the vengeance now. You know, because right. I, just, I just don't want to be in that place where I have that ball and chain around my ankle anymore. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a tough place to be. I, um, and fighting multiple diseases, having my family have to fight both cancer and addiction is a whole other issue that comes along. Mm -hmm. Yep. Anyway. Uh, and you you had brought me kind of brought us to uh, the next kind of thing I want to talk about your relationship with your higher power. You, you had talked about just, just a moment ago saying, you know, with God's help. And if you could kind of uh, uh, describe a little bit maybe where where you started with your relationship with God, maybe as a child or as a young adult, or maybe when you first came to the program and then kind of where it is now. Sure. I was raised um, Jewish in Bayside, Queens. I was bar mitzvahed at the age of 13. I had the sun coming in the windows on my eyes, my pockets filled with checks and a wonderful party, pictures with cigars and money rolled up, sticking out my ears, all that fun stuff we did yeah. in the 60s and 70s that our parents paid for. Um, so I was a nice Jewish kid. Mm -hmm. I rejected the religion. I thought there was a lot of hypocrisy when I would stand around after services on a Saturday or high holidays. I'd look up at all these men and they'd be cursing at at the at the black people or the the Indians across the street, the storms. There was such a dichotomy between what I was hearing in the synagogue and what I was hearing spoken outside the synagogue that I was I, I was having cognitive dissonance. I was it was making me uncomfortable, and I just basically I walked away from it um, from Judaism at that point in my life. And I had a very religious family, 
Um, so I was observant and compliant, but I didn't have the same thirst for the faith mm-hmm. as my family did. My sister married a rabbi. Um, I love my brother-in-law. I love what he believes in. I love what he stands for. I love the symbolism of his life. I love his community work. Everything that he's ever done has been for the good of the greater good. And he's been a powerful example for me. Um, But as far as spirituality goes, I believed in a deity that was more universal. Um, certainly not the guy with robe and, and, and long white hair and stuff like that, but more like the love that circulates between people, around people, the force, if you will, that there's an energy in the universe that we can all tap into. And it's an energy that's generally a good energy. Um, and, and for me, that's my universal God. When I pray, I pray to the universe, to that thing that I can't quite see or explain, but believe in, and that's my faith. And what it consists of, it consists of kindness, love, tolerance, hard work when I help people. I love, you know, the service work that I've done over the last 10 years. Um, and, And that to me is doing a little bit of God's work here on earth. So my spirituality comes from, I guess, from deep loss, deep pain, the yearning to understand something outside myself that's at work in the universe that I can't quite put a finger on, um, and and to work with it as a partner in my life. I believe my higher power is my partner. You know, he supplies a lot of the energy and I supply a lot of the legwork down here. Um, and it's working out. Um, I think I'm helping a few people both in program life I've done a lot of service in the world of uh, homelessness and uh, and, and um, food insecurity for families, and um, you know, and I just believe in helping my neighbor um, at any opportunity that I can. And I, I met a woman who lives that way with me, and um, you know, it seems to be working for us. Mm-hmm. And just, I guess, for my own clarification, I, I mean, I grew up more reform, but somewhere between reform and conservative, where, were, where, would, where would you say you kind of grew up? I would say the parents were like staunch conservatives. Okay. But my mother was so crazy. My mother was so crazy. My brother loved ham sandwiches <laughs> that she would keep a pile of ham in the back of the refrigerator for my brother oh God, just funny. so that she could satisfy my older brother. You know, she was, that was the kind of hypocrisy I grew up under. Yeah. Howard, uh, if, if you kind of get the dichotomy when I talk about oh, cognitive yeah. dissonance, that's the stuff that we're talking about. Sure. I, I understand it too. I, I, I actually, my, my father grew up more, uh, conservative, even probably more, uh, probably just this side of modern Orthodox or something. I don't think they called it that back then, but he kept kosher growing up. And, and, uh, you know, I didn't know this as a kid because he married my mom who, who didn't. And so we more gravitated to where she was. And, but I had the, almost it's the same exact experience about, I got bar mitzvahed, I went to Hebrew school, I graduated and, uh, I joined a Jewish fraternity, but only because I was more connected to those people than other fraternities. And that was the extent of my connection with the religion. And, and then later, like you, uh, had the development of that relationship, uh, through people in, in recovery, really, uh, you know, they mm-hmm. they demonstrated mm-hmm. to me the love, the tolerance, the patience, all the things you mentioned, uh, that I had none of when I came to AA. 
you know, so. Mm-hmm. I've also been able to take that, um, that experience of Alcoholics Anonymous and bring it to my faith community, which is now Unitarian Universalism. Okay. And my, my wife and I joined a universe, Unitarian Universalist congregation in 2007 because we wanted to give my son an opportunity to choose his own way, mm-hmm. to okay. choose his own life of spirituality and get his own education. And what we found there was a very liberal re- religious organization that was basically about human rights, environmental causes, LBGQT causes, yep. gay and lesbian rights, all basically human rights and um, and earth rights. And, um, and it's a beautiful fellowship of, Men and women that are, you know, it, I kid around and I say it's what happened to all the people that stopped touring with the Grateful Dead. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's where, where do all we go, where do we go now? In, uh, in come Unit- over here. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, you could start a church, Unitarian Universal. It's, but, it's, but it is a religious organization and it's very serious and its mission is really about, you know, um, defeating racism, opening up the world's mind to equality and justice um for all it's it's a pretty amazing agenda now do you find yourself doing any type of rituals from judaism at this point or not really the family does we celebrate hanukkah we celebrate um uh we celebrate passover we've had passover seders here at the house um but my wife being non-jewish we also celebrate easter and christmas um, and I've been known to celebrate Kwanzaa <laughs> and, uh, and, and anything else that brings children singing and laughing. Beautiful. That's a, I like that. Uh, anything that brings children singing and laughing. That's a pretty, I, I like that setting it right there, setting the bar right there. So a quick story, Howard, yeah. on sidebar. Um, I don't remember the year exactly. I think it was 2012 Sunday morning service. We had the holiday pageant these little cherubs, children, singing about Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, all the holidays. And it was 48 hours after Sandy Hook. Wow. Yeah. And to tell you to see our children and to know what had happened only like 75 miles away. Right. The congregation was just, there was, you know, I can't say there wasn't a dry eye in the house. That goes without saying. But the emotional depth of that morning and what we felt as a community was one of the most memorable experiences. And, you know, Sandy Hook was a horrible, horrible experience. And um, with these children singing and laughing just 48 hours later, it helped. It helped. It helped assuage some of the grief that we were dealing with that that morning. So just saying, just wanted to share that with Mm -hmm. you. Thank you. so the question I had while you were speaking is, did as you're going through, you know, the alcohol and drug affliction, and now you have cancer, did you ever kind of say, hey, God, why me? <laughs> not really. I, I laugh okay. only because I've been asked that so many times. I'm not that kind of person. I mm-hmm. never went up and said, you know, what's your story? Why is this... I've, I've always been someone that said, thank you. Thank you for everything you've given me. Um, not for what's been taken away, but what you've left me. Um, and I have so much. And I've really been given, you know, 
more than a do-over in life. Um, my life is really on borrowed time, has been for a long time. And the cancers were just like facing another illness. Um, I think the addictions are really harder for me than the cancers. The, um, you know, the, the mental anguish of addiction, the, the, the lack of ability to communicate clearly and all the things that come cancer science you yes no black white there's a lot more definitive mm -hmm. alcoholism for me was a lot tougher um and and remains tougher i think um listen i'm going tonight for a cat scan i gotta go for a cat scan at 10 30 at night because they're they're getting me back onto a treatment for radiation because my blood platelets have been low for like two months so okay. now they're up elevated enough so before they go down they got to get me back on radiation. So, you know, it's never easy. It's not easy fighting this for five years. I mean, I, I told you about the first six months, but what followed was radiation, chemotherapy, radiation again, surgery, chemotherapy, different types, all different treatments. And there's about six or seven rounds, uh, six or seven regimens of treatments for the types of cancer that I have. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm on the last one right now. Great. So, um, so they want to get me through it. And as they crush my red blood cells, um, there's the possibility I won't be able to be treated going forward. But there's also the possibility that this will knock out most of the cancer. So we're hoping for the best. But the answer to the question really is that alcoholism has been harder for me than fighting yeah. cancer. Yeah. You, you bring to mind, like I, I – when I was younger, had diagnosed with heart disease. And with that, it's like they can show you up here, you know, oh, here's your artery, it's clogged, here's heart disease, and here's the treatment. You can't deny it. Whereas alcoholism or, or drug addiction, like, mm, prove, prove that I have it. You know, show me on an x-ray, show me. A, and, and I really agree that, you know, it's, it's almost that level of acceptance is just immediate because you, you, you have proof. And... You know, so so, but with the alcoholism, it just like I, I need it, I need something else. There's a there's a spiritual as aspect to alcoholism. You know, the spiritual, emotional, yeah. threefold nature of the disease makes it even harder to get into the ring with. You yeah. know, and that's why we get out of the ring. That's why we say surrender. You know, yeah. um, but but it for me, um, for me, as devastating as cancer can be, and as hard as it's been. I, I really believe that my alcoholism and my addictions have been harder on my life than my cancer. Mm -hmm. So let's take a look uh, next at, so now you're kind of back in, back in 2018 and you, you know, you, your story is, you know, the relapse and everything. Did you feel uh, welcomed by people when you came in? Did you feel uh, kind of judged or, you know, tell me a little bit about that. I think that I think that people coming back from relapse face tremendous challenges um, emotionally, and I'm one of them. I mean, the the fact that they're afraid to share that they've relapsed mm. because they're afraid of being judged because they have been judged in the past yeah. is a very challenging aspect of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, my personal experience is is that I had to work real hard to fight through the judgments. There were some, 
And there were statements that were made that, oh, you're just somebody who can't get sober, you know, yeah. but you keep coming back. So I guess that's OK, you know, and that's pretty fucking cruel, actually, if you think about it. But excuse my language. Um, but people have said to me, you know, most people, most and I really mean like 98 out of the 100 people that I'm talking about were we love you. You're always welcome here. This is where you belong. Whatever happened, keep coming back. Just we're grateful that you're okay. You know, all of that, the love, the warm blanket on mm. a cold night, that was really my experience, not the people that were negative. There were a few curmudgeons, sure. Sure. but those few curmudgeons do hurt a lot of people. And that's what bothers me. I've been able to get past it because for whatever reason, I have more internal fortitude. But I've seen people come back from a relapse and turn around and walk right back out the room after somebody said, you know, yeah, yeah welcome back. You know, I, I know you. You're the fun to watch club, you know. Yeah. It's, there's, there are comments made that just don't make sense. They aren't welcoming. So for me, I take the welcome to people um, in my home group, especially. I take that first handshake, that first, it's nice to see you here. Let's find you a seat. Let me get your number instead of give you my number. Yep. Um, and really make an effort to make someone feel welcome. And we've not only been able to do that at St. James, we've been able to do that in the Zoom format as well. Yeah. We've been able to make people feel like they belong in that room and that they're home. And it's an amazing, amazing thing to experience. Yeah. Uh, and, Depending on when someone's listening to this podcast, you know, we're, you know me and Joel, this is uh, we're uh, June 30th right now in uh, 2020, mm -hmm. and uh, we're, we've been going to Zoom meetings, and uh, and that's that's the way we've been connecting, and that's actually the way I, I met Joel through a Zoom meeting through another friend, and you know, and and it's it's great that people feel welcome in in that format because it's it's got to me, uh, you know, I I can only imagine the exponential difficulty it must be to connect with people only only through zoom like there's no other yeah. way to do it and so yeah I'm and they're doing it yeah there, there are some people that are actually getting it done absolutely in a fantastically amazing way currently and and again this is probably more for our audience because you and i know it currently there are some meetings opening up okay in buildings as well as in public spaces so right now we're looking at there's meetings in the Zoom format, there's meetings in the brick and mortar format, and there are meetings in open parks. Um, I haven't attended anything but a Zoom meeting since the first week of March. Sure. sure. Um, and I'm not in a rush to join a group of people right now. No. Or, or I, as much, I have seen friends, we've taken walks in parks, um, and that's mostly been about meeting about sobriety and discussing things. I did some step work with Sponsi, but I've also used Zoom for that. Yeah. Um, Zoom has worked to help me focus my relationships with my sponsees all the better. They show up on time. They're ready to read for the <laughs> hour funny. and they do the work. It's, it's really, it's working better. I think he, he, a little less coffee chat, a little less, yeah. Unintended consequences, you know, getting things done. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I just want to re reiterate, you know, what you said about coming back in and, and maybe for people out there who, who, you know, are coming back from a relapse that there are, you know, ninety nine percent of the people 
are going to welcome you and love you. And there is this small percentage of people that, to me, it's, you know, they're just not for you. D- d- don't don't get yeah. don't don't get wrapped up in in what people are saying because it's uh, there are so many more people who want to love you and embrace you and meet you where you are right now. And so please, you know, please take advantage of that. Very well put, Howard. And I would also just add that, you know, there's the old story. If you're walking onto the bus and you walk down the aisle and 99 people tell you they love your shoes and socks, but that one person tells you they don't like your shoes and socks, what's going to make your day? The 99 people or the one person that didn't like it? And so you can't let that one person who doesn't like your socks ruin your day. That's right. And that's the way I look at it. And that's the way I look at it. And I help people. I, I, I think I do, but... By, by reaching out to the newcomer and reaching out to the person coming back and, and trying to express to them just what you said, that they are welcome, that anything they hear should not be interpreted as lack of welcome. Correct. Correct. Okay. You are now in uh, back in the program, it's 2018, I'll say January, February, March time frame, and you're looking for a sponsor and starting to... Uh, re-embrace the steps i imagine at this point mm-hmm, uh, can mm-hmm, you talk a little bit about mm-hmm. how that is you know because you know going through the steps before and then going out and then coming back and going in, and what was your new approach to the steps this time what i like to say is that the longest journey that i've ever taken is the journey from my head to my heart mm. and that in doing the steps this time around in the last couple of years working the steps with our friend in a, in a, what we call a literature group, working the steps with two sponsees going through it, writing my fourth step again for my own sponsor while my own sponsees are writing their fourth steps to share with me has been, you know, where am I at right now? I am in my own way. I'm going back through the steps, but I'm in the traditions right now for myself. But I'm in the steps, I'm in the big book, um, fourth chapter with one sponsee, and I'm on the 12th step in the 12 and 12 with another sponsee. So I like being in three different places in the literature at the same time, okay. working with three different people. It seems to be, it seems to just be filling my life in a wonderful way. And uh, I'm assuming that doing an inventory today versus many years ago when there wasn't cancer, you know, and marriage and kids is you're finding out maybe new things about yourself. Is that, is that fair to say? What I had found out the most about myself in the last 24, 36 months this time back is that I'm more lovable than I ever thought I was. And I mean that in a humble kind of way that I, I can just love myself in a quiet way. And I don't need that from other people to justify my existence. Um, and what I'm, what I'm really saying is, is that I'm living well. I bounce that off my sponsees. I bounce that off my sponsor. How am I living? How am I doing? Is there anything you want to tell me about what you see in me? I ask those questions today because I'm looking because I'm trying to just be, leave the best legacy I can leave because my legacy up until 2011 was not very good. Hmm. You know, um, it was, yeah, I struggled with addiction, la, 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 but I didn't, I didn't succeed in that struggle until 2011. And, uh, you know, I had sobriety, but I wasn't succeeding in my recovery, um, until 2011. 
and um, I'm, I'm sorry that it got interrupted by cancer and again, chemical dependency, but I feel like I didn't really lose too much momentum in that, in that, you know, 18 month period, but, but it hurt my wife and I had to put her on my fourth step list. And uh, I've had to make a s sincere living amends and, and we've done it. We've built our marriage back up to it's in the best place it's been in 25 years. Uh -huh. um, now I told you in my writing, we bought a house back in December. Mm -hmm. That was a partnership between the two of us. I was able to rebuild our finances, which had been destroyed in 2009. And, and to see how happy she is when she's out there looking at her garden and watering and, and to see her joy. And listen, I love the house, but to see her joy, that's my joy. Mm. That's really my joy. And, that, and I never used to feel that way. It used to have to happen for me, not for someone else. Today, if someone else is happy, I'm happy. Nice. Yeah, it's... Uh, Pretty amazing. Well, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> you had mentioned uh, earlier on about codependency. And, you know, I think, <laughs> I think there's some unique uh, thread to... Jewish families growing up, you know, codependency seems a little worse there. Um, you know, I'm sure people listening may disagree, but that's okay. Uh, and and that you know, uh, you know, uh, the the three quick statements on that is you know, I love you and I hate you and I need you. You know, and mm. yeah, that's that's like mm. if 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 you're looking for a quick definition of codependency, that's kind of the, the way I look at that. And I love that. Yeah, and and uh, or or the. The other one is uh, that, um, you know, it, well, the first thing is that you know exactly, without a doubt, what's best for another person. The second step, <laughs> absolutely, right? The second step is you carry it out, right? And the third step in, in its codependent, you know, spiral downward is that you expect a resounding thank you in return. And I never got that, you know? Don't you see how much I'm trying to help you and all that? And so it's world downward. And what you described is kind of the opposite. I really like that is I'm more lovable than I ever thought I was, you know, and I can actually be happy when someone else is happy, not happy because somebody else is happy when, in other words, I, and it's even better if I have been part of that journey, but sometimes mm -hmm. I haven't been part of that journey. And I am so happy that your life is getting better for you. And right. without the jealousy, without the pettiness and like, well, that's not fair. You know, yeah, you're right. Life's not fair. People don't act right. Get used to it. And, 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 and but just the way you describe that, just the, the, the happiness and the growth in your marriage. And, and I was going to ask, as you talked about the living amends, if you could just highlight a couple, because I'm sure there's people listening saying, well, what, what does a living amend look like in, in, in Joel's world? Let's yeah. say. All right. So what it looks like in my world are things like this. I, um, I like cars. I take care of my wife's car. Mm -hmm. My wife drives a nice car, but you know, most people, when she gets into their cars, there's soda containers on the floor, on the passenger side in their cars. When they get into her car, they ask her, did you get a new car? No, my husband takes care of the car. Every time she says, Joel, People think this car is like brand new all the time. And it's, you know, it's a nice car. It's seven years old, but it looks new. And I, so that's the kind of unconditional caring for her that I don't ask her to say thank you. When the dishes are in the dish in the sink and the dishwasher has been done and I know she's upstairs and 
you know, I don't wait for her to empty the dishwasher anymore. I just say the dishwasher's full. Someone's got to do it. I'll do it. I'm here. I don't mind doing it for three minutes. And it leaves, it relieves her of the burden of a couple of minutes work. She works real hard on her business. Mm -hmm. She works real hard on her family. She's an advocate for me, for my cancer. She deserves as much of a break as she can get. So I love to give to her in those kind of ways. Um, so keeping the car nice and spotless for her is yep. it's just something I'm proud of for me. But it's also she gets a lot from it. Um, things like that, uh, Howard. Um, I, I'm, nothing else is coming to me right now, but um, but there are other things. It's really a general attitude of just mindfulness, mm -hmm. being present for, and 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 really demonstrating a willingness to listen and be helpful. Hmm. And, and that's what's changed i'm not making demands in my marriage anymore i don't think i deserve anything from anybody i don't feel like uh, you know i want to get out of the house and, and be away from here i used to i used to run to meetings at night to get away from the house hmm. wow you know yeah. that's, that's no way to, that's no way to be in a marriage it's no way to be in a life so today you know there's a balance you know she loves that i go to meetings but she also loves that i'm home i love that i go to meetings at least today i can go here at the house but i also love being home so and you know and and it, it, it's uh it's it's just it permeates everything because i see in my son the kind of relationship that he's developing with his girlfriend yeah one that, that i hear him ask questions what do you think about this what how would you like to, uh, us to handle going to this? And I'm like, when I was 18, I wasn't talking to my girlfriend like yeah. that. I was, I was telling her what I wanted and where it was happening, you know? So, so you know, we play role models and we don't even know it. And, and fortunately, my kids are getting some decent modeling um, for a healthy relationship. Yeah. And I went to Alan to help with that also, but, but my wife wasn't my qualifier for Alan. How how many years did you go to Alana? Went to Alana uh, from about 2011 when I came back in to about 2014, just before I was, I got sick. Okay. Um, and I went primarily. <laughs> he's gonna love this. I went primarily because um, my my employer, my business partner, was a nut. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and ultimately he proved it because we got him off to Betty Ford. But I needed to go to Alana in order to just work with him in any way. Because, you know, for me, Al-Anon is about holding on to who I am, no matter what anyone else says or does. So if I have my set of my code of morals and ethics, and I, you know, I'm living the straight and narrow, and you, you know, throw a bucket of cold water on my desk, I don't necessarily believe it's right to retaliate. So although I'm tempted I've got to hold on to that belief that it's not right to retaliate. And that's what Alan Arm has done for me. It's given me that separation. You can do wrong and I don't have to do anything. Yeah. And I don't have to change. I don't have to change for anything anyone else does. And, uh, and that was hard for me in my life. I changed for people. I was very chameleon like, yeah. um, as an, as a young addict, as an older addict, I was people pleaser. So, so to have that sort of self restraint, um, in relationships um, has been a great gift of, of working this program and living in this program. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the idea, like you're saying with the living amends for me as well is it really is the little things, 
you know, whether it's the dishwasher or, uh, you know, changing the garbage or you know, all these little things that someone has to do around the house. And we, we can equally do them. There are certain things, though, that I do that my wife doesn't care. You know, she doesn't want to do any of the bank stuff. Okay, I'll do it. I'll show it to you. Mm-hmm. And there's other things that she does that I, you know, and so we do have the division, but at the same time, the things that I do where I'll get this, oh, did you empty the dishwasher? Yes. Just, oh, thank you. She would have done it. She would have mm-hmm. been okay. But it just that sense, that sound of relief and kind of, I'll even say gratitude in her voice. And I would say that, because this is my second marriage as well. We've married for 10 years now. I, I was uh, married before. Uh, and so this is my second marriage. You know, it's, it's, uh, 10 years we've, we've been married. And one of the things, one of the main differences in the marriage I have now is, I won't say the elimination of drama. I mean, I'm saying it, but it's that's going over. But a complete reduction of, do I need to continue this disagreement? You know, because it starts in my mind, and then do I need to vocalize it, or do I need to just accept the change, accept this different? You know, and I am so much more accepting today because I I realize that those thoughts are really about. Uh, just the selfish desires, you know, and and getting what I want, even though uh, at, at any cost. And sometimes the cost is, you know, a little bit of awkward silence for a few hours. You know, I might have got my way, but now someone's not speaking to me. And and that's what I was going to say. I may have gotten my way, but I've hurt someone's feelings in the process. Yeah, at what you know? cost? And, and I identify a lot with what you're saying, and I um, I too you know, know that I'm no longer as volatile in my relationship as I used to be. And that volatility reminds me of the selfishness that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, I can now sort of stop and say, am I really being that selfish? And am I going to argue with her? And, and, And usually for me, I lose that sense of balance when I'm hungry, when I'm tired, when I'm a baby, when the little boy inside of me hasn't yeah. been nourished, or I'm frightened about something. I'm frightened I'm going to lose something. So then the significant other will come into my space and she'll ask an innocent question and I won't be ready to be centered for it. And I'll go, Argh! you know, yeah. and then it starts something like, well, what are you talking to me like that for? I said, no, it's, it's not what I said. It's how I said it. It's, you know, and then it starts to get yeah. off the rails. You know, so I so I identify. And in the last two years, I heard this. Does it need to be said by me? Does it need to be said by me now? Does it need to be said at all? Yeah, exactly. I was also reflecting on what you said about uh, Al-Anon. And I, too, spent, I would say, you know, going for a neighborhood about 10 years regularly. And what I like to say is it's, it was a different set of tools. You know, AA gave me like a hammer and a screwdriver. And that's that was great. And then, and then Al-Anon gave me a socket wrench set. I was like, ooh, I didn't know there were all these other little neat little tools. You know, and it's not that they're, you know, it's just a different set of tools. And, I, and, and yeah. I'm so appreciative of many of the members of Al-Anon who have, you know, taught me how to, uh, as, as, you know, the saying goes, detach with love. You know, right. and, you know, because I have people in the workplace, in my family, wherever it is that aren't doing things to me they're just doing things and right. my tendency is to just launch into some you know 
uh, it, judgmental tirade and sarcasm and all that. And it's like, well, what, what are you doing? They're, they're just doing it. It's not to you. So mm-hmm. I love mm-hmm. that. Now, Al-Anon is a very loving and freeing program. For me, it's fa- I found it to be a very extensive 10th step work. You know, yeah. of taking of taking my inventory regularly and and stop taking the other person's inventory because they're going to do what they're going to do and and whether I agree with it or not, it's not really my affair. Yeah. So, um, Alanon helped me a lot. Okay. Uh, one of the things I asked you to describe uh, in some of the background was a story where the outcome was so much more wonderful than you could have ever planned for yourself. Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, that one came tough to me, Howard. Yeah. I um. I, uh, I've had so many wonderful experiences in my life. Um, I've had experiences that I thought were wonderful that have become less wonderful over time. Okay. Um, they've changed in their meaning, but they're still wonderful. But I think that, I think that the greatest experience in recent his- history was the decision to go into some contract dealing of selling some insurance policies and raising some cash to buy a house, to make a lot of moving pieces and get out of the rental market because we didn't like having, you know, three sets of 30-year-olds drunk on Friday mm-hmm. nights above us in a, in a rental unit. And it was very upsetting at this stage in our lives to live like that. So so we, we worked hard to reestablish our finances. We got very lucky with some deal opportunities that came my way. I had to really work hard to convince my wife that I wasn't being, you know, pie in the sky and, yeah. and throwing our money around, you know, and, um, and she ultimately agreed and she's one grateful lady today because in December we bought this, you know, small house in Glen Ridge, nothing, nothing dramatic, but it's ours and we're paying a mortgage and we have a little garden and we have a little two car garage and, and we're living in joy. We just live and enjoy. And, and like I said earlier, when I see how happy she is to be in her own place um, again, because I feel like a big part of the loss of our other house was my addiction and mm. my problems, not hers. She was an innocent bystander at the time. Um, so to be able to do this again and to give this back to her, I can't, I can't even express how grateful I am. Wow. That's awesome. I mean, I just, there's just no words. Uh, so that, that has turned out better than I could have ever imagined in terms of the flow of positive feelings, energy, love, just out of a home, out of a small home. And my son loves it and my daughter loves it. And it's just, you know, it's not just a house. It's our home. And uh, and we're really, really grateful for that. Mm, that's a great, that's so. a, just a great story. I, uh, I myself found myself in a lot of financial difficulty uh, year, years ago. A uh, lot of lot of credit card debt, uh, and and uh, eventually went into a bankruptcy court in two thousand five, and mm-hmm. uh, you know paid all that back. and uh, And now, it's me and my wife, we recently paid off our townhouse a couple of years ago, and our cars are paid for and paid for and we are literally debt free you know and so Isn't that great yeah and and what i didn't realize is that there's a spiritual piece in that uh when you have nothing at risk financially uh mm-hmm. and because the math sure that makes sense but once you you're you're 
you're in this spot of, I don't owe anybody anything, you know, financially. And nobody can tell me that, you know, and, and I mean, but I used to get a lot of letters in the mail, a lot of things, a lot of phone calls. And so even beyond that, it's like, so if I don't go into debt, I'll never have that again, you know? And, and now we can mm-hmm. do things and go on vacation and, and you know, so it, it, the freedom to have your own place, you know, and it's, is amazing. So. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, um, I never really, I never really knew how valuable it was on a spiritual level. Yeah. It was ego that had me in that big house. Mm-hmm. It was my, it, it, it definitely looked good on the outside, but I didn't feel good about it on the inside. It, I didn't, no, I was proud of it, but it was, it was a false pride. This I earned, I owned, I did it the right way. We worked hard to put it together. There was no shenanigans involved in these dealings, all above board, nothing, you know, nothing crazy. We didn't have to borrow from anybody to make mm-hmm. it happen. It, and we own it. And it's it's just, it's, it's a gift of recovery um, to do things the right way, according to the way they're supposed to be done, and they work out well. It's all right. Yeah. I like to think of it as the mature way to do it, right? Yeah. Because, you know, <laughs> yeah. a child says, I want it, I want it, I want it. And an adult says, you know what? I want it and here's a plan and I'm going to get it. And once I get it through the plan, through earning it, I, I feel like I did something. And that's a great example. Yeah. And, and the thing that I also didn't understand in my amends. Okay. Uh, I had to treat the credit card companies and the car companies as if they were part of my amends. Because when it was explained to me, you know, when I, the reason I was getting the bills and the phone calls, because I thought they wanted my money. They wanted their money. The money I borrowed that they trusted me with that I misused. And now I was pissed because they wanted it back faster than I had it. And so in my amends, when I talk about amends is paying, the, paying the, all these people back is part of the amends. And lo and behold, it says in the promises, you know, financial freedom. Oh, I see. So when I pay everyone back, that's when I feel free. And until then, I may not feel free, the financial freedom and talks about it, because people make a little joke. Oh, well, that's never going to happen. And I'm like, no, it, it will. You just it have can. to act on it. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a great example. Yeah. It is, Howard, um, because, because it is something that requires maturity, perseverance, consistency, and that's sobriety. You know, um, and if you can apply that to your financial life, you can have a pretty good life, um, you know, materially while practicing spiritual principles. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with having money. So at this point, uh, you're, uh, you know, I, I met you on Zoom uh, mm-hmm. at this, uh, I, call it, I call it the Montclair meeting, but I think it's, it's called the morning meditation meeting, right? And it's yes, 7 a.m. Yes. every day. And the reason I'm kind of bringing this up is, uh, I, I don't attend that meeting every day, but I, I think you do <laughs> or, or, uh, uh, because every time I'm there, you're there. Uh, and even when I talk to our friend, Tom, you know, I, I, you know, I saw Joel or whatever. And so we, so I know you are heavily involved in that and, uh, the meeting, the way it's run with these co-hosts and, you know, 
muting and, and phone number, you know, the organization and commitment it takes to kind of sit there and, you know, uh, when, when I, I had a friend, I, I still a friend in high school, from high school, and he's a performer, he plays a guitar, and I said, hey, do you, you, you know, I said, when I, hey, when I get married, I want you to play at my wedding. He said, I'd rather not. And I said, why is that? He said, well, when you're performing, you're not at an event. You're the performer at the event. And sometimes I, I see you and some of the others that it's almost like you, you kind of don't get a meeting a little because you're kind of working the meeting. And, and so I want you to just, you know, talk about how that works for you. The service end of doing it mm-hmm. seems to work really well. Um, we provided over 100 seats a morning for alcoholics to come to find recovery every morning since March 12th. And I'm very proud that we've been able to do that. Um, and we've created a very safe environment. We've protected it from bombers for the most part. Um, we know how to handle it when they come. And, and what it is is what we were talking about before. By doing that, you know, we're able to ease the burden of other people who are seekers for a meeting. We've created an environment where the technology isn't in the way of attending a meeting. I've tried to create it in my own vision where the meeting, the the Zoom aspect of it just doesn't interfere. You don't even know you're in Zoom. You're actually in a room with people and you're talking about Alcoholics Anonymous and you're sharing. and, And the fact that we're muting and unmuting you is just like you raising your hand and lowering your hand over at St. James. So... We've been successful in that regard. How do I get my recovery through that? Well, that's part of my service. I also do sneak away and get into meetings like in, you know, 12 noon and, and okay. sit, listen, and share as a participant. I go to the 8.30. I do a little service, but I do get to a few meetings that are not service, that I'm not there as a host or a co-host. I'm a pure participant because I don't get participant benefits as a host. Right. You know, a hundred percent. I get a lot of things. I get a lot of other things, but I don't get participant, full participant benefits. Um, but I really do. I, I mean, I really do enjoy being able to provide that service and um, and to help people find their way into these rooms and to start sharing and and to start hosting. I mean, you know, we have a whole new group of people hosting that we just trained last week. And yeah. it's like, they're like babies going out there. They're so excited. And it, it's fun. And, and in that sense, it's, you know, they're they're having a new AA experience. So it's 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 AA with a twist. And it's, it's adding to their experience. Um, certainly not taking away from it. So, so, you know, I get my own by going into individual meetings. I get my own by doing the literature group on Monday nights that we do with Tom. Okay. Um, I get my own, I get my own by doing my step work with my sponsees and my step work with my sponsor. So I, I think my needs as far as program are getting met. Yeah. I, and I, I just, from, from this platform, want to thank you for really, uh, dedicating yourself to that, that type of service work. Cause it really is a new type of service work that many of us are on the pioneering lines where, cause I know, mm-hmm. I know the first few weeks of the meeting were not as as they are now, uh, <laughs> there was a lot of work put in and you know, things put in because I remember that you could chat with other people and that was the decision. It's like, no, that's too much of a distraction. No, and I was like, it is. 
Thank you for reminding me yeah. that that's a distraction. You know, all the little things, all the little changes I start, I noticed, and I was like, wow, that man, I wish, I, I wish I would have kind of thought or, or had my own self discipline. But it's like, no, nope, sometimes I need an, an an outside source to say, uh, you need to focus. You need to focus, and I, I just yeah. really appreciate. We need the. Gr- yeah. I need the group for help. I need the group for help and for reminders. Um, most of what I learned about Zoom, I learned by going to other people's Zoom meetings, you yeah. know, and, and figuring out what they were doing. Uh, very little of what I've done has been original. Yeah, yeah. Some of the background work I, I sent you kind of a little saying about, you know, one of the things that uh, has hurt me more in my recovery is not the things I don't know, but it's the things that I thought I knew for certain, but I was wrong about. And you had shared a couple things in that, and, and I'd like you to share that with, with the audience, some of the things you were certain about and, and found out you know, later you, you were mistaken. Yeah. So when I, when I was 28, I was riddled with bad thoughts. And when I say bad thoughts, I don't mean you know needles and, and, uh, and pipes. I mean I was riddled with thoughts of racist, bigamous, polemist, whatever womanizer, you name it. I had, I had an attitude problem, you know, and when I say an attitude problem, I think that when someone says, Oh, all women are bad drivers, that's a bad attitude because mm. not all women are bad drivers. I could show you several that are quite talented and race on formula one race courses, mm-hmm. but people say things like that. And I went into rehab with all oh, that black bastard. And what did they give me in rehab? They gave me OB. He was 6'4", 235, black, out of Newark. He was putting guns to people's heads for nickels of crap. Mm. I, was, I, was, I was 140 pounds coming from, middle, from Northeast Queens, nice little Jewish boy. Yeah. <laughs> First time in a rehab in the mountains of Pennsylvania, and my roommate was Obi Reed. <laughs> yeah. I was scared shitless. I was scared shitless. I, I, you know, here I was in a room with a black guy for the first time in my life. So those kind of attitudes had to be shattered. I mean, absolutely shattered. And they were in the first 30 days. Um, You know, the attitude that I was functioning well at 28, because here I was in rehab. I had my glasses. I had my nice Hawaiian shirt. I had funky shorts that I went in on. I don't know if you've ever been in the rehab experience, but people come in, they think they've got cool. They think they're cool, but yep. what they are is they're street addicts. You know, they're, they're, they're not, you know, they, they've got very little left. And that was me. I had absolutely nothing left, but I walked in there and trying to convince them that I was cool and that I had it going on. And I was living such a horrible lie of denial. And my group at the time, they would put us in a circle and you'd tell your story and they'd rip your story apart yeah. until you cried. And, um, and they did that. And, and you know what, they got to me and because it was the truth. The truth is I was chemically dependent. I was wearing a mask. I was lying about myself. I was, you know, not the God's gift to womanhood that I thought I was at that age in my life. And, and what I'd really done is I had hurt my parents terribly. I disappointed them, you know, immeasurably. I had stolen from them. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have a very good life going. My prospects weren't very good at that point. So here I was in rehab running away from a few thousand dollars debt because that's what I was worth at that point. Debt, a couple of thousand dollars that I owed for cocaine, sold everything in my apartment, 
went to my parents' house. I said, I need to go away for 30 days and I'll figure it out when I come back. It's a pretty broken human being at 28. Mm-hmm. And I would have hoped that that would have been enough for me, but you know, times had to get worse at times, you know, just different kinds of worse. I never hit that kind of bottom again, Howard, but I've hit other bottoms. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, actually, when you were talking earlier about, uh, gambling and sex and, uh, and and all those things that can show up, even though you're sober, um, you know, I remember, uh, I had actually, my father gave me a, a credit card. Uh, I think I was in my 30s and I needed, still needed a credit card for emergencies from my dad. You know, it's embarrassing to say, but, you know, with 10, 12 years of sobriety. But this is, this is a level of maturity I still had because of, you know, my lack of, uh, lack of willingness to be honest about where I was. Anyway, he, he, um, and I moved to New Jersey and I discovered a little bit of gambling uh, with Atlantic City and I went and got a cash advance on that credit card. And, um, fully intense, like, and, and I was going to pay it back. I was going to, you know, uh, and let's say it was a thousand dollars. I don't remember. Um, but the thing I do remember is he calls me up. Uh, I don't know. Let's say three weeks later, whenever the bill came in, uh, cause I had thought I would be getting the bill. Uh, and, I, and he said, Hey, I'm feeling uh, the stress. Yeah, I'm but, right. The stress. You're a father. I'm a, I'm a father now. And so he, calls, he says, he says, Hey, Howie, man, uh, uh, I think someone stole the credit card I gave you. And I said, why would I? I says, someone in Atlantic city got a cash advance for a thousand dollars. And there was just this silence on my end. And I, I said, no, dad, it, it wasn't stolen. It was me. And, uh, he said, well, well, well you know, I just, I, I, you know, the disappointment in his voice by the silence, you know, there was no yelling. There was no, and he was just, mm-hmm. he says, well, I, I, I think I'm going to need to take that card back and I need, I need you to pay me back, you know? And, and it just, I almost rather he would have yelled at me. I would rather, you know, there was just some kind of like horrible punishment, mostly so I could blame him for yelling in that way you know, again and continue right. that. Right. Um, but, you know, here I was in this point in my life stealing from my father, you know, not telling about it, not doing it, just, you know, and, and, you know, it's like you said, these things that, that I've done in sobriety and on my way back down to the next drink. Now I was fortunate, never went that far back down, but I have done many things to just be just on this, this side of that. So I can say, Hey, I'm still sober, you know? And, you know, Oh, but I, but I, you know, but I gambled thousands of dollars and I, and I visited, you know, uh, women I shouldn't have, and, right. uh, you know, but you know, still sober and, and, I, right, but I didn't drink. I kicked yeah, the but, dog, but mm-hmm, I didn't right, drink. Right, right. Told my boss to go f himself, and you know, slam the door shut mm-hmm. on my wife and, and the car door. And, but I didn't drink, you know. And and that's yeah, something yeah. I've been having to deal with for the past, I'll say, fifteen years of my recovery. Just understanding that the depth of pain, you know, and the alcoholic who still suffers uh, is a guy with twenty seven years who's getting a divorce. And because the only thing that changed about him is his breath and, mm. and, mm. and, you know, having to help somebody through that, uh, that's kind of where I see my, my, uh, being most helpful 
uh, you know, and yeah. where one of the reasons God has saved you, one of the reasons God has right. saved you is to help people in that type of marriage. Right. Cause we're, you know, and, and uh, people probably will not be happy when I say this, but I don't always think the newcomer is the most important person in the room. Um, because the most important person is the person that's hurting today, you know, over something that they have no control over and they don't know what to do and they don't know which hand to slap their ass with. And, and so here we are to help you with that. And I really hope with 28 years, you're able to tell us that you don't know what to do. Cause it's much easier with a week and a half to tell me you don't know what to do. Cause it's not that embarrassing, but when it's 28 years or 11 or whatever, you'll pick a number that's multiple. Uh, I, I, I get in this place of we're here for you. If you know, really, this is this is what we do here. Yeah. You know, people like us help people like us. So, if 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 you want the help, we're it's here, here to save our asses. We're here to save our asses, and you're not going to embarrass yourself in front of me. Not me. Sure. No, it's like because because yeah. because <laughs> more than likely, I've done it in sobriety also, and just the, yeah. the I really you got fired. Yeah, four times. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just <laughs> you know because I had to be right with my boss. You know. Yeah, what I wanted to talk a little bit about are some of the things that I learned while I was at the ranch. Okay. Things like that I mentioned earlier, you know, that it's very possible to go into a surgical procedure, take narcotic medication while in hospital, but then have a plan to leave the hospital without narcotic medication. Yeah. You know, to have, and, 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 you know, I knew of those things, but I wasn't ready to practice them. So, you know, in this program, I've learned to take responsibility. I didn't seek alternative methods. I didn't look for somebody to count my pills. I went, you know what? I can handle this. And I had not handled it well for 40 years. But there I was once again, disease click. I can handle it. Hmm. And it got me in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, denial once again saying, you know what? Uh, I took care of all this. I could probably take care of this. And it's like, well, maybe you can't. Maybe no, you can't. and it's a terrible disappointment, not only to the self, but the people around around you. Yeah. They don't get it. They don't understand. The doctors are confused. The wife is confused. The kids are crying. Everybody's confused because you said you'd be okay. Yeah. But it's a disease. And my brain was hijacked. And even though I meant and had the best intentions... My behaviors proved otherwise, and yeah. that's addiction. Yeah, definitely. Okay, uh, so we've reached the uh, the part where I like to ask about uh, the books or or uh, other than AA literature that enhanced your journey in recovery, and you you gave me a couple. So if you can uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, one of my favorite books is um, is a very simple book. It's called The Search for Serenity. It's written by Bill Presnell. It was written in the 50s as a guide to families that had to cope with polio and the polio epidemic Mm -hmm. and the powerlessness that came about from it and the absolute sense of, you know, complete loss of control, both physically, emotionally and spiritually. And, And he used it as basically a guide to third step. Okay. And as a study guide for third step. So it always became my entree into the third step, the search for serenity. And it and it really speaks to, you know, the person who goes to the sink and washes his hands incessantly because he's an obsessive compulsive. Mm-hmm. We get it. Yeah. The civilians don't. We can help that person. We can understand him. We can be tolerant of him. We can even love him unconditionally. 
civilians out there. They want to they want to extradite them. They want to separate them. They want to make them feel ugly, and they want them to be different. And none of this makes us different, in my opinion. It, it gives us the opportunity to become better people if we grab it, find the tools, the spiritual toolkit that we're offered, yep. and then and then we practice it and share it with others. Um, it seems to be a good way out. Yeah, yeah. I find uh, you know professionally, uh, I teach high school, and and there's different ways people learn and there's different ways people act out when they're frustrated and you know all these you know i have a classroom of you know 15 15 students and i got 15 different personalities there isn't one that you know uh that that you could say oh i can handle this one just like this or just like this and then you know it all goes out the window two days later because this one broke up with their girlfriend or this one happened you know uh, they got a lousy grade in a previous class and they're in my class and they're miserable and i you know and and just that idea that hey I get it, it has taught me to deal with my emotions that really start much like a teenager has where it's out of control, and say hey there there's a there's a good way to deal with this there's, there's a lousy way to deal with this I think I think you know that and if you don't know it maybe you'll discover a new crappy way of dealing with you know while <laughs> while you're you know not listening to anybody, but when I really practice the principles you know the program it it, the results i get are are amazing and i just recently got a letter from a student um who i I wish i I wish i could read it here it just just not exactly the the place for it but uh the the reality is i made a difference someone who felt that their education mattered who didn't feel that they could do very well in a chemistry class because they they're not smart they're not math person and and I, and I understood that, and so I helped them with that. Are they going to be a scientist? Probably not. But at least I was able to create an environment where she felt she mattered. She felt that her learning disability wasn't in the way this time. You know, it just—and again, it takes—it took patience on my end and understanding, and, and that's, a, that's a big gift that we get. And- huge and to be able to give that person that kind of love and confidence in that what they had done was worthwhile yeah and meaningful adds value to their lives and and then they go on and share that vibe with someone else and and you know before you know it people are actually being nice to each other yeah um you know it's the way it was supposed to be you know i i love um I love quoting the Ten Commandments every once in a while when people are complaining about mom and dad. I like to end it with saying, hey, if honoring your mother and father were that easy, it wouldn't have been one of the Ten Commandments. No, it wouldn't. And uh, it's not easy. They install the buttons, they press the buttons, they push the, you know, all that stuff. And they're so much like us from inside out. And and we don't see that, I think, for years, that when something bothers us in someone else, there's something wrong in us. And that it's really something about us that they're doing, that they're reminding us of ourselves and something that we don't like. At least that's my grip on that part of the tenth step. Yeah, know, and, and and taking and taking my own inventory. Yeah, it could, and you remind me that you know this feeling of loneliness and feeling like you're on the outside is not limited to us. You know, mm-hmm. it is just it is so pervasive, and I think one of the ways that. Uh, the 12-step program teaches the love is through that fellowship and letting someone know you belong here. 
you belong here. So yeah, it's a, it's a and, great and, gift. and giving that person that gift of feeling like they belong yeah. in a place where there are a lot of people that have come before them, it, it can be rather daunting. Yeah. Um, and, and if you make that person comfortable, you've performed a miracle on that day, yeah, uh, I believe, you know, and, and, uh, and that, and that's part of why I believe we're still here and we've been saved to, uh, to really help people forward. In, yeah. in, a, in a world where people are getting lost more often than ever. So, you know, that's my philosophical way of looking at it on yep. a practical level, Howard. I go to a meeting in the morning. I call my sponsor. I call my sponsees. I wait for them to call. Either way, it works sure. both ways. I do the readings. I do service, you know, whether it's phone call three times in a day, six times in a day. I take outside meetings. I'm involved in the program in ways that... Um, I don't think I ever was before. It doesn't burden my life in any way. Mm -hmm. It's an easy part of my life, and it adds to my life in ways that I um, I can't quite measure anymore. But the the quality and the value of it is evident in the joy that I experience. Yeah, yeah. You know, and even with stage four cancer and yeah. daily pain and daily sort of suffering and people, you know, you. If you, if you know you look good, I know you're sick. You know the whole conversation constantly. Mm -hmm. But even with all that, I I walk around in a, with an air of gratitude that is beyond my own comprehension. Yeah, and and it's, and I think you kind of tell me it's okay that I don't know what to say when you say I'm not feeling well with my cancer. I don't have cancer. I I have alcoholism, so I can relate to. I don't have cancer, but you're kind of saying to me well, that's okay. I just need you around. I just need you to, to be here to listen to me. It doesn't really matter that we don't have the same exact uh, affliction. I mean, uh, I don't know if my doctor has diabetes. That doesn't mean he can't treat me for diabetes. He can't understand that it's a, it's difficult, let's say, you know. So the doctor doesn't necessarily have to have gone through something, the exact same thing, for him to be helpful. And I think that's what, you know. You're kind of telling me here, so thank you. Would we say that that's different than the principles of our fellowship, that really we do have to identify with each other in order to help each other? I think that's what we said when we saw Bill and Bob talking, that that conversation was the foundation of 85 years of growth. Um, were they helping each other, and were they starting a movement, or was it a coincidence that it worked for them and they carried on? I think they were quite aware that they were onto something from from what I've read in Bill's writings. And uh, and I think he was intentional from the very beginning to create an environment where a lot of people could come and start to talk about recovering from this disease. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely creating a place for us to, to be exactly what we are. Yeah. yeah. So this has uh, uh, been been wonderful. Uh, we're kind of coming to, to the end here, but I, I always like to give my guests a, a, a little little bit of space on the platform. If there's anything uh, that I didn't ask about or something that you want to talk about, uh, and and you know have the audience just kind of tune into that, this is be a perfect time for that. Well, I would certainly take a second to say thank you to everyone that's listened to our words to to this point. And I think that if I were to say anything in summation, it's that, again, the gratitude that I feel for the life that I live and that I share with other people, I hope other people can pick up that vibe and do that. 
with ease. It takes some courage to break through. It takes courage to break through your own selfish fears that I'm not good enough, that I can't really do this, that I don't know the answers. Well, none of us do, as far as I'm concerned. Right. We have an idea, we have an inkling, but we don't know the answers, and we all deal with a level of insecurity. So join us in the process of loving each other and caring for each other and 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 just um, you know say hello to your kids, say hello to your wife, and say hello to your parents and you know, I, I think, Howard, if there's anything we didn't discuss, it was um, it was one of the greatest gifts of my recovery was that my parents lived long enough to see me put my life in order. Yeah. You know, and that my father and I had a full relationship by the time he passed and that I was present in my mother's life for the last 10 weeks when she was dying in a way that I never thought I would be possible. So my relationships with them went full circle, 180 degrees from being, you know, adversaries mm -hmm. to being to being a son a father a son a mother and to having a family um later in life and they enjoyed that and i was so grateful to be able to share that with them one of the greatest gifts of my recovery that's fantastic well i think it's a perfect place to stop and uh again i want to thank you for your time and and your patience with all some of the technical difficulties we <laughs> Me had, too. Thank so. you for your time and your patience. Howard, it's a great show. I really do look forward to catching up on the episodes, and I really do thank you for having me. Thank you. We have come to the end of this episode of the Seasons of Sobriety podcast. I trust that you were able to identify with the personal story of our guest and perhaps apply some of their experience to give you the hope needed to persevere through your own journey. If you'd like to contact the show, please send an email to podcast at seasonsofsobriety.com. The email address can be found in the show notes. This podcast has been completely self-funded. If you believe today's episode has been beneficial, I ask that you either contribute a little extra this week to your home group or another organization close to your heart. Until next time, remember, if you have trouble practicing the principles of the steps in all your affairs, you may have too many affairs.